and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast. My name is John Reynolds, the host of the podcast. Later in the podcast, we've got an interview with Helen Kelcraft, one of the founders of Lucky Generals, which is a really insightful interview. We've also got some insight into um, Eurosports, Peter Hutton moving to uh, Facebook, all about sports rights. Uh, but before all that, we have got, um, I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Bourne, who is the Director of uh, Communications at the uh, Advertising Association. Thanks a million for joining us, Matt. For our listeners, can you just give a, a potted history of your career today? Sure. Thanks, John. Um, so this is my first in-house role, John, in my career. Actually, I spent the first 20 years or so of my career consultancy side, Yep. Uh, always working with the media, marketing and advertising businesses, the majority of that career uh, was as managing director at Braben, yep. um, specialist business, and we ended up um, selling that business. And uh, and uh, last summer, uh, I, I was approached about the possibility of joining the Advertising Association as sure. the new director of comms, and, and here I am. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating brief, you know, because essentially we are asked to be uh, the voice of advertising uh, to government and yeah. to uh, policy decision makers. So it's a pretty crucial time for us as an industry with the uh, political changes we're seeing and also the technological um, changes which are coming into the industry. Okay, so you mentioned the um, some of the changes. Now, you've got a big event this week, the Industry Summit. I see that you've got quite a few high-profile speakers on the agenda. So what's all that about then? So I guess the, uh, Leeds, it's the seventh year of yeah. Leeds and it is the Industry Summit. It's kind of where, where advertising meets politics and for us it's really about setting the agenda for the year um when you sort of break that down it's going to open up uh, with liam fox um the secretary of state um talking really about um the dit's mission to support us with selling advertising uh to the world to uh, actually boost the yeah. export of advertising services at the moment we we export about 4.5 billion pounds worth of advertising a year yeah um, and the uh, the focus from a DIT perspective, I think your listeners will probably know the great campaign, sure. um, is really to look at how we can, uh, as an industry, as advertising, be part of that campaign and get smarter about selling mm. uh, UK advertising services to international territories. This is all in the context of Brexit. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the work that we're doing at the moment really is around uh, things like what does a free trade agreement look like, the perfect sure. free trade agreement for advertising. Okay. So we've got a, 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 a raft of speakers that are going to focus in on that. So Liam Fox is looking at that. But then we've got um, Chucker, um, Chucker and Mama, mm. um, to give us a you know an interesting perspective, if you like, as a Remainer from within the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, and then we have Vicky Price, who's a leading economist, and Vicky Price is really going to say, right, okay, where do we where do we fit global economy, UK economy? What does this all mean, and what, you know, what chances have we got uh, in terms of building building advertising um, and exporting it? So that's the sort of the first raft, and then the second the second raft of speakers. Uh, it's led by Andy Street, um, yeah. and he is the uh, mayor for the West Midlands and the former MD of John Lewis, uh, and it's a real big focus on. How does advertising help the economy yeah. um, across nations and regions? So, you know, we're not just a London-focused industry. We are a UK-wide industry. Um, and actually some of the work that the Advertising Association is doing is really about how to encourage 
SMEs to advertise and how to grow the economy yeah. um, by getting more businesses involved in advertising. Because we know that when businesses advertise, mm. they grow mm. um, and it makes a contribution back to GDP. Yeah. Um, but we need to, I think, think about the ways in which we can we can help the um, the economy do that and help SMEs access advertising services. So that's a that's the second okay. raft. And then the third part of the event, the final part of the event, yeah. is really a conversation about what's going on at board level, about yeah. growth and about advertising and the investment in advertising. We've got uh, Nick Manning uh, and Alan Erskine from Credit Suisse yeah. um, going to be talking about that. And then our closing keynote is Stefan Vitoza from Procter & Gamble. And that's fascinating because for us, he kind of, he demonstrates the strength of us as an advertising hub on the world stage at the moment. You know, he's a Brazilian mm. who has worked all over the world and now works out of the UK on behalf of a global advertising brand to represent it in Northern Europe. So we're going to find out more about his story and in the context of Brexit and yeah. freedom of movement and the sure. technological change, how does this all work? And then from a um, Procter & Gamble perspective, I know um, their theme is really about how um, advertising and the investment they're making their brands can be a force for um, social change and a force for good. Okay, that's that's very detailed. That's fantastic. So uh, you've also got Alex Mahone, who's the new boss at Channel 4. I guess I, I had a quick look at the speaker list. I guess, uh, from my understanding, they're all Remainers. I guess maybe it's quite hard to find a Brexiteer on the, on, in the media and advertising industry to speak. Or maybe there are Brexiteers, are they? Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. No, I think you're probably right. I mean, you know, uh, anecdotally, so I was at uh, Adweek Europe breakfast um, last year, mm. one of the Ronnie Scott breakfasts. Mm. Um, Liam Fox was there. And uh, he opened up by saying, um, you know, could you do a show of hands as to, uh, you know, how you voted? And 100% of the attendees within Ronnie Scott's voted to remain. Yeah. And I think it is it is quite a challenge to find um, people that look to, um, you know, uh, to, to leave uh, within, within our industry. But I think, you know, the position now is, okay, it's happening. Yeah. What what is it that we have to do um, to make sure that we've got the very best chance to succeed mm. um, and to compete on a global stage? Because we're really proud of our position. Um, we think we've built a successful position as an industry, um, as a global hub. Um, yeah. But we need things like the freedom of movement for talent to, yeah. um, to be actually even more um, you know, supportive to our industry. Mm. Um, things like GDPR are really important to us. You know, we're increasingly global digital marketplace. Sure. We need we need to make sure that we can transact um, okay. with that marketplace. Yeah, I think after the Brexit vote, there was a flurry of doom laden and doom mongers talking about uh, international contracts being cancelled and brands. Uh, pulling out of London and going overseas, but all that seems to have uh, died down to a certain extent. Do you think that uh, if you talk about advertising agencies and media owners, do you think they've got a, a full grip of the um, possible ramifications which have come out of the Brexit vote, or do you think there's still a, an education piece to be done uh, from you and uh, I guess other trade bodies too? I think there's still work to do for us all to understand the full implications of Brexit. You know, we were we were nervous as we were going in towards the end of the year about whether mm. trade talks would start or not. Um, I think n n the confirmation that trade talks are um, going to go ahead 
um, is a good indication, um, but we now need you know the clarity on that so we can we can we can you know plan for the future. I think for many businesses it's really business as usual, yeah, um, and and you know pushing pushing forward with that. And I think what what we're focusing in on as much as possible is the opportunities that this represents, right? Um, and that you really is being encouraged by you know uh, departments within government like DIT and DCMS to, to to look out and say, how do we get better at selling around the world? Okay, so what is, it's this Thursday, isn't it? Whereabouts is the event then? It's King's Place. Um, promotional the, plug. Yeah, um, just, just uh, St Pancras King's Cross. Uh, it's a packed morning. It's quarter to nine to right. okay. one o'clock. Okay, so apart from that, that's obviously taken up a big amount of the Advertising Association's time. Is there anything else on the, the radar this year? What, what, what else should uh, our listeners be aware of? Well, there's lots of um, work that we are doing this year. I think uh, one, of the, one of the interesting ones around this kind of uh, you know conversation at boardroom level. I went to the Solus Club dinner um, in honour of David Bernstein um, last Tuesday. Yeah. And David Bernstein um, in 1966 uh, made a film called uh, Risk and Responsibility. And that was actually funded by the Advertising Association. Oh, really? Um, and it is, uh, I think, in many people's eyes, if you're going to watch one film about advertising, in fact, Sir John Hegarty was on a panel talking about it, and he said, if an alien were to land on this planet mm. and you wanted them to understand what advertising is, you'd play them that film. So um, I would encourage people to yeah. watch that film. It's a great, great piece of kind of documentary. Um, but also the panel was Sir John Hegarty, Robin Wright, and Keith Weed. Yeah, and they were discussing the merits of uh, remaking the film for a new generation. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and the conversation, really, I mean, you know, the thrust of the documentary is that in order to stand out, you need to take risk yeah. in your advertising and encourage risk to be seen to be different. But at what point do you do that and you abdicate responsibility for the company that you're working for? Okay. Um, and I think you know, with the technological change that we're seeing and political change. I think there's a whole new set of risks yeah. which probably can be explored. So one of the things that we took away from the dinner um, was actually, is it time to have a look at this film again? And is it time to um, you know, just see what the new sets of risks and responsibilities are when it comes to how we use advertising? Okay, that sounds fantastic. So there could be a film out in the next year or two then? A, a remake? It's a watch this space. Okay, right. Thanks a million, Mac. And do stay tuned because we've got Helen Calcraft and we've also got some insight into the Facebook new appointment all about um, moving um, Bolster and its presence in sports rights. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Now we're joined by Rupert Pratt, a sports executive who is the founder of Snack Gaming and consultant to Snack Media. So Pete Hutton, who is a big name in the world of sports rights, is leaving what is presumably a, a comfortable job as CEO of Eurosport to head up Facebook's efforts to broker worldwide deals of live streaming sports. Now, from what I've read, the story seems to have got a lot of heat, but do you think people are over-egging this by saying this means that now Facebook is going to bid for a bonanza of sports rights then? Um, I, I, I think it definitely indicates um, Facebook's direction of travel yeah. and probably ups the ante um, in terms of people's perception on what they're going to do in and around the, the sports broadcast or sports rights market. I think to put that into context, um, personally, and probably a lot of the industry has seen Amazon as, 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 as the major player yeah. um, in their ability to, to sort of monetize uh, 
a sports rights investment, a significant sports rights investment, and Facebook have been sort of perceived as sort of playing around the edges and not necessarily serious in terms of their intent. I think um, securing uh, Peter with his background um, is a clear statement of intent, I think, from, from Facebook, that they probably intend to do something quite significant in the market. Okay, yeah, for, yeah, you're right, from what you said. So Facebook's made small moves in sports rights. These are, They've got partnerships to stream uh, Major League Soccer, some Mexican football and some Champions League matches. And I think they did bid for the uh, Indian Premier League. But as you say, it, it's looking to... Um, Facebook's model is basically looking to partner with leagues and broadcasters where Facebook will hold the streaming rights. And that's, that's, I mean, that's slightly different to Amazon, I think, which is bidding for actually TV rights. So, I mean, but I mean, as you say, I mean, this guy, this Pete Hutton guy, he was CEO of Eurosport. So obviously he's not going to be CEO of Facebook. So as a sign of its intent, obviously it is significant. So, I mean, can you, what, what sort of rights do you think they'll look, I mean, it's, uh, I guess rights always come up there, don't you? But what sort of sports and rights do you think they'll look to bid for going forward? Yeah, I, I think they'll be looking to, to, so a great example being, you know, football. So I, I think they, you know, they will now make, a serious play to football. If if you think about Facebook, and I think it's two two billion two mm. billion users, is it? Yeah. Um, you know, football is by far the, for obvious reasons, the most popular sport uh, across uh, Facebook's um, Facebook's users. Yeah. yeah. So I think you know that clearly the rationale behind bringing someone like Peter Hutton is is firstly to make sure that they are securing the right rights. Yeah. And I think the key thing is that is actually securing. So, you know, their IPL they they, they failed to secure the, the IPL rights because either they lowballed the market at six hundred million, I think, um right. The winning bid was 1.2 billion. Oh, really? That's interesting. Um, yeah. So again, I think the point is, you know, if you're serious about it or not, and if you're serious, mm. you know, it's, it's one thing to tender for these rights; it's another thing to win them. So yeah. again, I should obviously he'll be brought in to determine what that strategy is. But most significantly, you know, prior to uh, working at Eurosport, he had a uh, a background in selling rights with MPN Silver. Oh, right. So, Here's someone who's got a great background in terms of both, I guess, selling um, and buying, mm. uh, buying rights. Now, he was behind the move into securing European rights for the Olympics, yeah. which was a huge thing at the time. So, so, he, so, so I think so. Firstly, it's about he'll be brought in to <clears throat> identify what that strategy is, but most importantly, ensure they win the right that they yeah. want to win. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then on top of that, he's got he's got a, uh, a you know a, a view in terms of how how they're going to monetize that yeah. uh, and monetize those rights. So um, so for your football f- football will definitely be key, um, and that that as we know is a is a highly competitive marketplace, mm. and you know with with a high cost of entry. Mm. Um, and I think thereafter they're going to look at look at the the, the sports that that reflect their their user base. And can, can can drive revenue. Yeah, so it seems to be. So I think it's joining after February the ninth, which is um, I think yeah. that's the cutoff point, isn't it, for the domestic Premier League rights? So um, how much influence he'll be able to have on that? Yeah, um, but you don't think they're going to? They're probably not going to. I mean, there's there's a whole gamut of different packages, aren't there, on the Premier League rights? But you think it's unlikely yeah. that? I mean, it, the Premier League have obviously talked this up, but that's obviously in their best interest to raise the price, right. isn't it, and things like that. But 
yeah, competitive tension is great. You know, it keeps it keeps everybody on their toes. Mm. Um, you know, there's definitely you know Sky and BT Sport are going to be looking over their shoulders. So, so yeah, again, I don't. I think his appointment. I don't know how much influence he'll be able to have mm. on Facebook's um, bid around the Premier Premier um, yeah. League rights. But but if, if if they are successful in their bid, he'll obviously have a, a significant impact on on their usage and their, and their implementation. Um, but again, I, I think it's for me. I think the big thing here is, you know, th- this uh, the hiring of Peter is, 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 is a clear statement of intent where where Facebook's concerned. And I don't think we know they are that they're going to go from sort of playing around mm. uh, and sort of what I've saw previously is sort of test and learns. Yeah. You know, how serious were they around the IPL rights? Was mm. it just a case of securing, yeah. you know, a key sport in, in, in a uh, in a key mobile territory? Um, so I think what you'll see now is over the next uh, two years is uh, Facebook entering entering the rights market um, uh, with some serious intent. Okay, right, and finally, that's fantastic. Just there was another thing I wanted to mention. I saw a report that YouTube uh, may also be viewed as a potential bidder for Premier League rights, but it seemed, the inference seemed to be that they would want to get all the um, not just the domestic rights, but all the international rights. But the Premier League would never accede to anything like that, would they? They'd always sell the rights territory by territory. Yeah, no, I, I think you know what the Premier League's doing really clever now is, is just how much they're breaking those rights up now. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and enabling lots of different players to um, access and use them across different formats, different uh, obviously different geographies, mm. um, different time zones, different delays. You know, you've got highlights, uh, near yeah. live highlights, clips, etc. Sure. I think that 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 will continue because the broader they can spread those rights, um, the more the more people. Um, are coming in to, 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 to pay for them. Okay, right, that's fantastic. Thanks very much, Rupert. Take care. All right, thanks, John. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, and welcome to the main interview on the Media and Marketing Podcast. And delighted to be joined by Helen Calcraft, one of the founders of the advertising agency Lucky Generals, which is now majority owned by the advertising group Omnicom. Uh, thanks a million for joining us, uh, Helen. Um, just for the listeners, can you just give us a, a brief potted history of your own background today? Morning, John, and thanks very much for having me uh, on your podcast. Very chuffed. Um, Also going to say to the listeners, forgive us if we've got some background noise. Lucky Generals has just moved offices and we've got the builders in, so uh, hopefully it won't be too distracting. But yes, uh, so I'm Helen. I have worked in advertising for my whole career. I did a degree in drama back in the day, and I got my first job as a uh, graduate trainee at AMV BBDO uh, back at the uh, very end of the 80s, 89. I spent 10 years there. I then went off and did an MBA at London Business School part-time. I then co-founded an agency, MCBD, which was a wonderful uh, 12 years. Went to chair an agency called Dare, and then we started Lucky Generals four and a half years ago. Okay. Uh, okay. Now, the first thing um, I'm sure listeners will be very interested in in hearing about this. Um, the first thing I picked up on when I was doing my research was a tweet from you, which was dated October the 30th, 2017, which read, "Official first day back after exactly one year in cancer world. Going to the best goddamn agency in town. So yes, I am feeling lucky." 
which uh, is a tweet which got a lot of response, positive response, mostly from females, but not exclusively. So just so the listeners are aware, I'm a bit in, uh, in the dark about this. So obviously you've been off work with cancer, yes. which is about as much as I know. So perhaps yeah. it'd be great as a starting point to put this in some context of when you were first diagnosed and, you know, what, what impact it's had on your life, work and um, your family life too. Sure, and I'll try not to uh, get too emotional because obviously it's pretty raw uh, for me at the moment. Mm-hmm. But yes, I was diagnosed with breast cancer a year ago last October. Um, completely out of the blue as I was uh, incredibly well and about as fit as I've been and enjoying life and no symptoms whatsoever. Went for a routine check uh, and then found myself kind of on this horrific conveyor belt that is cancer treatment. Um, That lasted for, the worst of it lasted for about a year. I'm still undergoing treatment once every three weeks with a wonder drug called Herceptin, um, which goes on till March, but I'm now back working part-time. And yes, what can I say? I mean, cancer is one of those terrible things that affects or will affect nearly a third of all of the British population, which is pretty shocking, but thanks to the incredible improvements in our understanding of the disease, around 70% of people who get diagnosed will survive it, and I'm very lucky that I've had uh, what they call a a complete pathological response, which is not a phrase I'd ever heard before, Mm. but it means that insofar as they think they could have got and removed all the cancer cells, that's what's happened to me, clearly doesn't happen to everyone, and there is no guarantees for the future, necessarily, but insofar as... um, I could have had a, a, a great response. That's what's happened to me. So I'm definitely feeling lucky in comparison mm. with a lot of people. And I'm very lucky to be coming back to a job and to a bunch of people and to my partners who I love to work with and to be around. So, and you've you've been quite public about this. I guess a lot of people in the advertising industry will know about this. Was this a, a difficult choice? I guess you didn't need to go down that route. You could have kept it quiet about it, could you? Or? No, I, I didn't need to go down that route. But I do think that there is still an issue with cancer being something of a taboo in society. I think mm-hmm. that people who are diagnosed um, worry about talking about it. And I think that people who are... Working with people who've been diagnosed, don't know what to do or say. Mm. And I think perhaps there is a role for people being a bit more open and talking about it. And in particular, talking about working through your treatment and going back to work after your treatment. And people not looking at you as though you are a victim and someone who isn't going to be capable of working again once you've gone through something like this. So it is something I feel quite strongly about. And if by talking about it, I can help others do the same and we can have more debate and discussion, mm. I think that's hopefully a good thing. But it's a very personal thing and for a lot of people it is very private and they don't want to talk about it, which is something of course I completely respect. Um, so you're obviously back at work, you're back full time now are you? No, I'm back part time, I'm still undergoing treatment and I'm in the very fortunate position of, of not needing to go back full time and I'm going to um, always work part time now. Okay, so um, quite a candid question. Presumably, um, I've looked at photos of you in the past, you've got this long, luscious blonde hair. Yeah. Now you've got short blonde hair. Yeah. You did lose your hair, I'm presumably. Well, I didn't lose my hair, but my hair, I mean I, I mean, I lost a good proportion of it and it was completely trashed, which is most people's experience with chemotherapy. Mm. And I had one of those days where I looked in the mirror and I kind of barely recognised myself and I decided it would be the moment to literally cut all my hair off and it was actually very liberating Mm. and I'm actually now having had long hair my whole Mm. uh, adult life I'm quite enjoying 
um, having short hair for a change. Okay. And what's generally, I mean, I mentioned that tweet, you had a lot of response from yeah. luminaries in the industry. I guess generally you've had a lot of positive response. People have been upbeat and um, sending the well wishes. Are you surprised at you know, I mean, the extent I, I, of people? I think more than surprised, I've been completely um, humbled and overwhelmed by the incredibly warm and supportive response of friends and colleagues in this industry. I mean, this is a tough industry and it's a highly competitive industry, mm -hmm. but it's an industry with a really big heart. And I, I mean, cancer treatment is a very long road and you're gone mm. and you're invisible or you feel invisible for, you know, many, many months of your life. And one of the incredible things about the people in this industry is I literally, I don't think a week went by where I didn't get a call, an mm. email, a card, a candle, a bunch of flowers from, from a well-wisher in the industry just kind of cheering me on. Mm. And I think that's a wonderful thing and a great testament to the people that we have working in this industry. And has it made you reassess your work family life balance then now or not? Has it had any you know impact that way? Or? I, I'm, uh, I uh, stumble to say this but I'm not a fan of the phrase work-life balance because I think it's a, uh, it's a question that's mostly ever asked to women um, <laughs> so I find it, I find yeah. it quite troubling. Um, it, and of course um, being life-threateningly ill and being ill for a long time makes you reassess a lot of things and one of the things that was really touching and really moving to me is I remember sitting in the chemotherapy um, mm -hmm. uh, clinic one day talking to a bunch of women about about what they were looking forward to and dreading and I sat with six women and four of them said they were dreading going back to work mm. and I'm so lucky to work mm. in a job and with people that I love and I think the work-life balance comes from making sure that you're happy that you're doing all the right things for yourself and for your health but also doing a job that you love, and I'm so lucky to do that. Okay, and has it prompted you to take more of an interest in doing more, or I know you do some already, to, to raise awareness of, of, of cancer or fundraising through advertising, that sort of thing? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, ironically for me, I had this kind of extraordinary um, sliding doors moment when I was diagnosed, because we were just, and you're going to come on and talk about this, mm. in the process of, of, of selling our company. The company was riding high. I was really well, but I'd also been on the board of Cancer Research as a trustee yeah. for five years, and I'd learned a lot about cancer and been heavily involved with the fundraising activities there uh, and in fact I have recontacted them and I'm going to continue to help with with the fundraising and marketing efforts with that charity which is a charity I admire very much. Okay well I'm sure I speak for the rest of the advertising community in wishing you uh, well going forward. Now Thank just you. just switching topics last week we had uh, Rachel Bristow senior exec from Sky we're talking about the gender pay gap in light of all the hoo-ha at the BBC um, now she was saying which was interesting to me that she'd done an audit of um, pay at Sky and found that a lot of women were actually paid more than men on comparable jobs. Now, I know there's various stats flying around the ad industry about the gender pay gap. Where do you think we are with advertising on gender pay gap? Do you think there is a still great disparity or does it depend on what level you are? I think the stats tell us there is still a gender pay gap. There's a gender pay gap across the country in all industries. We still have a huge amount of work to do, awareness to raise and behaviour to change. Mm. So we're absolutely not there yet. But I think uh, as much as, as addressing the issues with the gender pay gap, we do still need to address mm -hmm. the issues with the fact that there are not enough senior women, there are not enough women in senior positions in this industry. If you particularly look at the creative side of, of mm -hmm. the industry, only 14% of our uh, creative directors are women. There are not enough women like myself who are founding agencies. There are mm -hmm. not enough female chief execs. And we have a lot of work to do, not just with the pay gap, but with the with the numbers of women not just entering the industry but, but rising to the top.
And how would you, I mean, is there any ideas of how we can combat that and change things? I mean, is there things about extended parental leave? Do you have quotas or what, is there anything you'd like to see change in the industry? Or is it an ongoing process? I think definitely there is still a big issue with, with if I talk to a lot of women in the industry, them feeling it's extremely hard to raise a family uh, mm -hmm. and, and, ra and rise to the top. I think we still need to do more on that. I think we are making progress. I think attitudes towards paternal leave and to, and to men yeah. taking time to help uh, in those early years with their children, that is changing, but we've still got a lot, a lot of work to do. Okay. Uh, um, sexual harassment, another big topic, which um, uh, we talked about a lot on this podcast, uh, perhaps more in the media industry, but in the advertising industry, uh, I asked all my guests this, have you experienced it at all in your time in advertising? Yes. I mean, I, I absolutely did experience it in my younger years in advertising. Um, I was very lucky, though, to work at an agency, AMV, where the founders of that company and indeed Michael Bork, the chief exec, they were incredibly uh, strong in their support of women. So there was a moment where we had a female managing director, a female head of account management and myself as head of new business, um, really kind of, you know, blazing a trail there uh, back 20 years ago when, when things were, were, were much tougher. But I did nevertheless um, suffer sexual harassment and I got to a point when I was in my um, early mm. mid-twenties where somebody in a position of power was really making my life miserable. I have spoken about that quite openly and I'm, mm. I'm going to throw my hat into the ring to see if I can help us really deliver change in this industry in 2018. There's lots of discussion but as as we all know, discussion needs to translate into behaviour. We need to clean house and we need to make sure that this is a real tectonic shift in our in our industry mm. uh, and, that, and that those sorts of that sort of bullying and abuse of power is something that we tread out in this industry. So presumably that was an older senior male then, was it? Yes. I mean, uh, and I've talked about this at, at various yeah. um, um, speeches I've given in the past. Mm. I was told um, that I should cut my hair um, if I wanted to be taken seriously because I came into work in the morning looking freshly fucked and I remember going home thinking you know there's absolutely no way that a man would be told to cut their hair and for many years and up until chemotherapy I did not cut my yes. hair. Uh, I also wore a ponytail to work one day and I had my uh, head forced down on a, on a Cornetto ice cream uh, with four men watching and laughing on and I then took a week off work because I was so upset and distressed so these kinds of behaviours are Life on Mars, their generational differences. Mm. That was one individual and absolutely not the culture of where I worked, but that kind of behaviour and that kind of bullying uh, needs to stop and we need to make sure that, that no one coming into the industry nowadays even thinks about, about gender. Have you named and shamed this person before then? No, I mean, I did resign over it and the agency behaved impeccably. They offered to pay my legal fees um, um, to deal with the situation and I decided to not do that. That perhaps maybe if, it, if I was 24 now, I might mm. think differently about it. At the time, I didn't want my whole work reputation to be affected by mm. that. But uh, this person's no longer in the industry and mm. no longer in a position of power. And as you say, that's a, a generational thing then, that the people of that generation with those... Um those um, ideas and those, um, they're, they're no longer in the industry then? Yeah. I think they are, there are still some and I think we need to do um, more to, to stamp out these behaviours and I think to take a collective view on what is and isn't acceptable behaviour as an industry. Okay, now let's change tack then, so let's talk about Lucky General. So it was set up by yourself, Andy Nairn, Danny Brooke Taylor yes. in 2013. Yeah. Uh, now, last year you sold the majority stake to T TBWA, 
Um, now, I think it's around... Is it around 75% state you've sold? Um, can you just talk about, I mean, at the time you gave a quote saying, we've been fortunate enough to have, a, have had conversations with many international groups, but Omnicom and TBWA Worldwide were the only ones to understand our desire for autonomy. Perhaps, yes. because, um, perhaps because entrepreneurialism, disruption and creativity are hardwired into their DNA. So uh, have they kept to that autonomy? Or, I mean, do you still think Absolutely. you've got autonomy? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, we, we certainly weren't looking to sell uh, a stake in the agency, let alone a majority stake. Uh, hmm. We were very fierce about our independence. We'd been through a merger before. We knew what Mm -hmm. not I mean obviously I I, uh, previously co-founded an agency that was sold we knew what can happen both good and bad and we were you know very fierce about our independence and one of the reasons that we created uh, and entered into this um, alliance with TBWA is is the complete understanding that entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. are best left to their own devices and best supported rather than um, have compliance um, brought upon them and so far I would say the impact has been you know, only positive and I wouldn't say that lightly. Okay so what's the, I mean, what's the biggest advantage and the biggest disadvantage of being owned by a big group? Presumably it gives you more leverage in terms of you can utilise the, the group and things like that when you're pitching for business can you? Or? Yes and, and I think we're learning a lot from other great agencies around the world who are part of the Omnicom group. Um, there are certainly um, advice and help and, and good business practices that we can lean into and learn from and adopt in the agency. Uh, which is which is a fantastic advantage. Um, I think the only disadvantage is 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 people worrying there's going to be a change to your culture and worrying mm. there's going to be a negative effect. And and so far in Touchwood there really hasn't. Um, okay. We're really proud that not one person has left our agency since we did the deal with Omnicom, uh, and we certainly don't feel there's been a, a, a cultural change of any sort, which I think is an achievement. Okay, and presumably, as we say, Omnicom have got a majority state. Presumably, there's an agreement in place for Omnicom to take the remaining stake at some point? There, the only agreement is that is that we will only sell that remaining stake when we want to, and they're very happy for us to not do that. They want us to continue to be stakeholders in our business and to continue for as long as we would like to do so. So that that that, uh, that lies okay. with us. Okay. And do you think, I mean, there are obviously a few remaining independents out there. Do you think we're going to see more acquisitions? We're going to see less independents as the groups hoover up more or not? I think one of the wonderful things about our industry is it's people with entrepreneurs. I always urge people, if if in doubt, to start an agency. It's the most wonderful experience. I think there will always be new agencies coming through for those who've got the courage and the chutzpah to do it. So mm-hmm. I think we would and we should see more startups. I think there is an interesting trend with the um, <clears throat> management consultants looking at this industry. They're yeah. very much, the jury's out as to whether those cultures will be compatible, but yeah. I think they're showing an interest, and that's an interesting development in the industry. Um, but, you know, long live entrepreneurship, I say. Okay, so let's talk about, you've got some uh, interesting clients. Amazon are one of your clients. I've had a quick look at some of the ads. saw the, the Fault It, Bought It ad. It's yes. the one at the gym, which has made me laugh which was great, and I saw the Christmas ad too. So um, are they a demanding client or not? I mean, we're so lucky to work with Amazon. They put their faith in us back when we were only about nine months old as an agency, which is a company, a US company of that size, backing entrepreneurial agencies we think is amazing. We've grown our relationship with them over the last uh, three and a half years, up to, as you mentioned, doing the work that we're so proud of globally for Christmas with our singing boxes. Mm. And they are just, I mean, of course they're a demanding client. They're incredibly ambitious. They are, you know, very, very driven to to keep meeting technological needs and to meet the needs of consumers. They move at a very fast pace. 
but we mm. learn so much and we think that it teaches us a great deal for our other clients as well as for, for working with them. So we love it. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much, Helen. And uh, do stay tuned. We've got another podcast next week, and the podcast is also available on the MediaTel website too. Thank you and goodbye.